Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Fascism was a political movement that emerged in Europe in the early 20th century that was like no other before. It didn't fit into any of the political ideologies prevalent at the time, but it was also similar enough in enough ways that in its early days it was categorized as all of them at various times. The violence committed by fascist regimes once in power, domestically and externally, places it in a difficult category to study. It's horrifying enough that we tend to want to see it as an anomaly, but clearly it was also appealing enough to be capable of gaining mass support. In order to really understand fascism, we first need to understand the other major political players in Europe at the time. So who were they, and how did each contribute to the political vacuum that would be filled by fascism? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Ethan Blesky. Hi! And today we are finally, at long last, going to start talking about fascism, which is a topic I've been gearing up to for quite some time, as most people will know by this point. If you're not aware of that point, you really, really, really should go back uh, the last few episodes. I believe the first one in the series is episode 120, which was evolution. And you should really listen to all of these episodes. They're not all going to be like... 100% included in this, but it's really important that you get each one of those to kind of keep up with all the stuff that we're talking about. And Ethan, you've listened to all of these so far, right? I have. I listened to all of them. Uh, They were fascinating. Um, Really caught me up on a few things that, uh, yeah, connected some points that I didn't necessarily have connected before. Yeah, I was uh, I was talking. Well, I was talking to our dad, actually, about about the topics that I was choosing, I think after I'd done about three of them and he was kind of going like, yeah, I had no idea where you're going with all of this at first, (laughs) but as it goes through, it's kind of like, okay, well there's, there's a direction building here for sure. Definitely. That, that direction is, is to talk about fascism because it's, you know, I find with the ways that people talk about fascism today, there's really two main pitfalls that, uh, that you can fall into. And, I'm hoping that by getting a better understanding of, you know, where this idea came from, what it's built on, what the context of it was, we'll kind of get past those a little bit. Those two pitfalls are people who think that literally anything that they don't like is fascism. (laughs) Yeah. This is not, this is not true. Yeah. And then the other pitfall is thinking that in order for anything to be fascist in nature, it needs to be like literally from the 1930s goose stepping in front of swastikas. And okay, yeah, that's not actually true 
either because the the thing that's that's really fascinating about fascism as a political movement i i hesitate to even really call it an ideology is that it's very explicitly nationalist in nature to a point where the way that fascism manifests in different countries around the world and different societies is so dependent on that society's own self-image, um, founding myths, things like that, that it'll look completely different in every single country that it ever shows up in. It's kind of uh, tailor-made. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's in fact, it's it's really important to fascism that it be very tailor-made because you can't really take fascism from one country and just sort of whole cloth put it on to another one right like um it it just it doesn't make sense because fascism isn't a i think a lot of people talk about it as an ideology and i've been doing a lot of reading on fascism and a very compelling argument i've seen about it is that fascism isn't really an ideology not in the same way that something like uh liberalism or socialism or conservatism is because it's not necessarily thought out all that well fascism is very reactionary and that's not to say it's not deliberate or intentional yeah but what it is to say is that while it has characteristics and while it has commonalities it doesn't necessarily have a core set of beliefs and uh reasoned out philosophies the way some of these other political philosophies do You'll sometimes come across the the phrase uh, fascism is, is an aesthetic, and it's something that I it took me a long time to understand uh, what it was that people were trying to say by that. But the more I read about it, the more I understand what they're saying. It's the fascism isn't necessarily like, you know, you can't say fascism is always um, I don't know. Uh, centralizing all the banks or you know fascism is about personal freedoms it's it's that fascism is this is this type of government that tends to creep up in the negative space of other ideologies it's a it's a government that exists mostly when the conditions are right but also when other ideologies have failed in a very major way Hmm, and That's one of the reasons that, in general, fascism hasn't been terribly common, mm-hmm. but it's also a reason to be very vigilant for the conditions that give rise to fascism or have given, reson- or given rise to fascism in the past, because it's important to understand that it's not the strength of fascism that allows for its rise, it's the weakness of other systems that tends to make the space for fascism to arise. Interesting. I know a lot of that sounds a little bit nitpicky, but it's yeah. going to be very important as we go along. It sort of sounds like you're saying the same thing just in a different way, but it's really, really not. All of this being said, uh, you know, as a very, very broad intro to fascism, um, what I want to do today in particular is, you know, I, I really want to take our time with this topic. We've already taken our time getting here. Now that mm-hmm. we're here, I don't want to rush through. And what I'd like to get comfortable with, you know, along with you is the idea of discussing politics in a historical framework. Okay. Because, because politics is tricky at the best of times, right? Yeah. And politics is um, something that in the modern world we're very 
familiar with uh, discussing on a very micro level, right? Like this is mm -hmm. the this is the sort of thing that can really impact your life very directly, but it can also say a lot about who you are as a person, and it kind of gets into every nook and cranny of modern life. And it's difficult sometimes to take yourself and remove yourself from that experience of politics. Okay. And be able to discuss politics in a detached enough way that we can meaningfully analyze it. Does that make All sense? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I I have a question for you to, to lead off. Okay. Have you ever tried to take a picture of the moon? Yes. And how did that go for you? Not great. Sometimes okay, but 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 usually not great. Why do you think that is? Lens depth and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's weird though, isn't it? Because you stick your camera up there and you take yeah. a picture and you're looking at the moon and you're thinking, wow, that is a really good looking moon. And you snap the picture and you look at the photo and you kind of go, um, that's not really what I thought was happening here, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen a painting of the night sky? Ugh. Sure, of course. The the point <laughs> the point that I'm making here is that sometimes the most realistic um, encapsulation of a thing is not necessarily the best indicator indicator of like the totality of the thing. Gotcha. This is a discussion that's been going on since you know with with photography and art since you know uh, Louis Daguerre um, uh, invented the daguerreotype in the 1830s right mm -hmm. like there's this there was this wave of artists that basically go well painting is dead um the idea of like realism in a painting is no longer necessary we have a thing that captures the likeness of things perfectly and then there are other artists who aren't just kind of crybabies about the whole thing who went what are you <laughs> what are you talking about photographs are a tool yeah but they do a very specific thing what they tend to do is give a false sense of completeness. There is a very, it's very easy to take a photograph and frame it in a certain way to cut things out or include things as you choose. But once you see the photo photograph, when it's finished, mm -hmm. you kind of take that to mean that that's everything that's there, right? You sort of yeah. believe a photo in a way that you don't believe a painting. By the same token, when you look at a painting, everything that's within the painting is there intentionally, right? It's there yes, for a yeah, purpose yeah. of some sort, be it aesthetic or uh, uh, metaphorical or what have you. But someone has made an intentional uh, effort to include those things. And this isn't to say that one or the other is better, but it is to say that sometimes one or the other is better at very specific things. Yeah, that's fair. And sometimes a painting even though it's not 100% accurate, is better at capturing the spirit of something than a photograph can be. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. 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 This is kind of the easiest way to approach this argument between the arts and simple recording um, for most people. But this is also a thing that applies to history in a lot of ways and that's something that i wanted to talk about as well there's a reason that history is included in in you know the arts as a department uh, at a post-secondary level any meaningful interpretation of history or any meaningful analysis of history is inherently biased there is a um process of choosing what to include in the frame as it were well you, you just said any interpretation of history right you, well, you're interpreting it exactly and and 
even when people choose to frame history as a you know a very uh, objective chronology there mm-hmm. is still that choice the same way that you know framing a photograph by cutting out part of what's actually in existence uh, is also a choice like that's that's still kind of putting your finger on the scale a little bit right yeah and the reason that I tend to talk about this show as a narrative history one is because I find that the way that people best respond to history is through um, presentation of the story as a narrative. It's a it's a framing device that we're all very comfortable with, right? Mm-hmm. It, it tends to help things make sense when they have a little bit of a beginning, middle, and end. But there are other ways of doing history that can you know help help frame things, and and all of this is pointing towards the fact that I want to do something a little bit different on HI101 today, which is I, I want to tell you and and through you, the audience, the same story three completely different ways. But it's the same story. Now, what I want All to be right. clear about, what I want to be clear about is everything that I'm going to say is either historical fact, as in it absolutely happened, okay. or it's going to be an interpretation of that history in a way that is was very common for people at the time who thought this particular way. So I'm not actually like inventing anything here. Mm-hmm. However, we're going to talk about it as though these are three kind of more or less real people that are living in Europe around the around the year 1919 or 1920. Okay, yeah. And talk about how they would have seen the 125 or so years uh, leading up to where they are just after the First World War. And the reason I want to do the, do it this way is that like the people that we're talking about here never exist. This isn't an actual person. Yeah. But the ideas that I'm going to present here, the um, the framing of uh, of all of these events and the way that they've shaped their worlds, you're going to see are very, very disparate. And why I want to do this is because 1919 is the year that the fascist party arises in Italy. And it's coming up in a, in a uh, an environment of massive turmoil, right? Like post World War One. That's that's not you know that's not a surprise to anybody. But it's three different kinds of turmoil that are going on at once. And what ends up happening is there's three different kinds of worldviews: um, people with liberal worldviews, conservative worldviews, and socialist worldviews are all kind of at a crossroads where their particular philosophies about the world are in some way not firmly planted on the ground. They're all being challenged somewhat? Absolutely. Okay. And what fascism manages to do is to worm its way in sort of behind each of these ideas, all Mm. three at the same time, which is really interesting to me. But in order to understand how that works, I want to really get inside the heads of these three fictional people. Uh, They don't need to be necessarily any particular country. Um, They don't need to necessarily be a particular age. I would imagine probably uh, fairly young. Uh, I would imagine they've probably served in the war. But like beyond that, it doesn't really matter because we're going for the amalgam of ideas more than anything. Okay. So that's the plan for today. We're going to start with a uh, with with our um, our liberal uh, European, and the reason we're going to start there is because, uh, by and large, a liberal worldview, while kind of one of s- 
several that would be floating around at the time, has more or less shaped the modern world to an extent that this could be considered a fairly standard interpretation of this history. Yeah, so, we had we had talked about liberalism and in one of ours earlier hadn't we yeah we've we've talked about it it comes up yeah. fairly often oh yeah what 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 i'd like to do here is like really get into what actual like what liberalism actually is Absolutely. in terms of worldview because again it's, it's kind of thought of as a default a little bit now mm -hmm. but it's it's um yeah I, I think i think probably the the easiest thing to to do is just kind of jump in so all right this person when we're when we're asking them about you know, the history of Europe, um, we're going to start with the French Revolution because the French Revolution would be extremely important to them. The French Revolution was potentially the greatest thing to ever happen uh, to Europe for this person. The, the French Revolution was a way for Europe to break away from the old ways of doing things, the backwards way of doing things, and finally free people from oppressive forms of government that have existed the entire history beforehand. It is a, mm -hmm. it is an inflection point where there's basically a before and an after. For this person, the, the French Revolution is fundamentally about the third estate, which is kind of, I, I don't know how much you're, you're familiar with uh, the French Revolution politics, but the, the third estate was... The first estate would have been the nobility, the second estate was the clergy, and the third estate was everyone else. Uh, okay. It's just kind of how French society was uh, was organized. And Would it have been specifically like a merchant class or just everybody? This is literally everyone. Okay. Um, now, what we're talking about in terms of the third estate is um, the, the king calling an assembly of the third estate, um, which is something that they kind of had to do every once in a while for certain tax type bills to get passed it was a messy old-timey politics type thing and <laughs> um the, the the french government in the uh 1780s was in in massive crisis they they were completely uh they were completely broke the country was in famine uh it was a it was a complete disaster and the third estate represents 98 percent of the citizens yeah so when they refused to basically help out the king on the tax stuff unless he started doing things about the famine stuff the king refused and tried dismissing the uh the assembly and they refused to be dismissed they stuck around and said well um we are the ones who represent most of france maybe we're the ones that should be calling the shots they did a strike <laughs> kind of a little bit they did a revolution yeah <laughs> These representatives are being in, uh, inspired by the ideals of the Enlightenment. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you really want to understand uh, human nature, you want to look to a philosopher uh, named John Locke. Yeah. John Locke is uh, someone who basically said that before there was, you know, he, he tried to really get to the nature of like what humans are like, um, because he, he, he was having this this trouble of like it seems like everyone's so shaped by their society what is a person without society what is a person without other people like and what Locke said was basically well a person without anything is free uh, they're basically free to live their lives as they please there's no laws inhibiting them uh, they are free to um, listen to others or not listen to others as they choose they're free to work with other people as they choose or not mm -hmm. and 
that's pretty great. And he kind of went, well, why would people get into a society at all? And what he came up with is this idea of the social contract. And this is this, uh, this concept where it doesn't make sense to give up any of your freedoms unless you're getting something better for it. And that society is a series of people giving up specific freedoms in order to gain uh, other types of benefits from them. And yeah. at first, this makes a lot of sense, right? This is this is you and me living out in nature and me going, listen, I've got my stuff over here. You've got your stuff over there. Tell you what, like, I won't raid you if you won't raid me. And you go, okay, deal makes sense. Now we can both stop fighting all the time. It just makes things a little bit easier. Yeah. But yeah. if there's some... But if there's some sort of penalty in place for, you know, us trying to rob each other all the time, it does technically infringe on our freedom to do the robbery. Uh, yeah. It's just that it's better for both of us if neither of us do. Yeah. And Locke argued that human society was a series of these agreements over time that began as very practical things, but, you know, over the, the centuries and millennia had become... Uh, more restrictive than they were worth, essentially. Okay, as we yep. handed as we handed over power to our governments to do things like enforce the no robbing rules, they tended to just sort of keep taking freedoms and taking and taking because, well, if you were government, uh, more control is preferable, and you know, more power is preferable, and more money is preferable, and it kind of makes sense how that could happen. And Locke argued that. This is overstepping the bounds of the purpose of government. Everyone has these inalienable, inalienable human rights, uh, universal rights, um, specifically uh, the right to defend your own life, uh, the right to defend your own freedom, and the right to accumulate property. Property seems like a weird thing in there, but basically what Locke was saying was that uh, property was the point at which people started developing the world around them for him property is about improving on the natural world so okay. you can't necessarily own a tree but chop down the tree and you know make a chair out of it and that chair is yours through imbuing it with your own uh labor and your own improvements yeah okay makes sense Likewise, to own a parcel of land, you need to be working it and a lot of these ideas are formulated by Locke's um thought about uh the new world and what uh differentiated europeans from the indigenous people they found there and whether or not there were any ways that they could justify taking that land away and this improvement idea is one of them um you can see how that would cause some massive problems um, yeah but the idea of property becomes really really important to the enlightenment this idea of what you work on what you imbue with your improvements and your efforts is yours and you can sell it or you can give it away but you you exert some sort of some measure of control over that yeah makes sense and because uh according to Locke, these social contracts don't come up until people start developing property that means the property precedes social contracts and that makes it a universal right so no one can stop you from making improvements to anything that's not something that's contingent on society that's what makes it a universal right huh okay yep it's the right to work it's the right to make you know yeah that's that's the way he sees that yeah, yeah, yeah. um 
So these representatives of the third estate, they're coming off of uh, nearly a century now of uh, enlightenment ideals. There are things going on. There's the scientific revolution. There's this idea of, of individualism that has come up. And it's very, very in fashion with the uh, intelligentsia of France. And they're going like, yeah, this, all, this stuff all makes sense. And now that they find themselves in a place where the king is in, a, in an extremely compromised position politically, mm-hmm. they're going, wait, if what, Locke, if what Locke says is true and he's overstepped, maybe this is an opportunity to make a society that is more in line with human nature as we understand it. And this gives them the opportunity to make, like remake France in a modern fashion that's never been seen before. Yeah, It's kind of been seen before in the United States, but that's a different thing because that's a new country and it's not reforming an old country. But, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of basing it on the United States. Let's be real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the U.S. has gone all in on Locke's ideas, and you know it's it's been what like a whole fifteen years. It's going great over there. What's <laughs> what could possibly what could possibly go wrong? Um, no, I mean it's it's actually seen as like a, a a realistic like experiment in whether or not this could work, and so far it seems to be working. Yeah. So yeah. these uh, these representatives uh, create the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Man, and. It's really focused on, you know, uh, expanding these inalienable, inalienable rights that every single person has. This uh, this idea of, you know, each person having a contract with the government and this idea of the government really only existing through the will of the people. Mm-hmm. They're also inspired to some extent by uh, the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But ultimately where things are going to end up with European liberalism overall is going to be a little bit closer to John Locke. The revolution essentially creates modern politics as we understand it today, because you're expanding the political class from like maybe 1% of the population to, well, not 100% of the population, but a significantly larger percent of the population than it used to be. There are things about our, our you know about common political practices that are are coming up under the the French Revolution here, um, the idea of representative democracy, the concepts of left wing and right wing are born in this based on where people of different parties chose to sat sit in the uh, in the House of of Representatives in the specific houses. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where those terms come from. Yeah, but specifically this idea that government comes from the consent of the governed. That's really the biggest takeaway. Yes. Sure, the re- the revolution ends up going into the whole reign of terror thing, and lots of people get killed. But like, <laughs> this is a this is a perversion of uh, revolutionary ideals because that's not really the will of the people, right? Like, that's not what they wanted. This is seen like you see this no. as a. Um, basically people going too far. And this person might've even been a little bit sympathetic to the reign of terror to some extent where it's kind of like, well, we've been oppressed for centuries. Why are we surprised that they got a little bit carried away at trying to purge the old regime? But, you know, ultimately this isn't like a good government. This isn't a rational government. That's also a really important thing to liberalism is this idea of like rationalism in, in decision-making in, in a, a life well-lived in, in basically all aspects of a person's life. There's this idea that um, less emotion and more logic is a higher level of civility, if that makes sense. 
yeah uh that that makes sense um it kind of brings up a question for me of uh how prevalent were courts at that time like uh like legal, legal courts. courts yeah i mean there are there are legal courts the um the the question really is is who the courts uh apply to would be a better uh question to be asking if you know what i mean um, oh okay the 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 revolution what what the revolution ends up doing is is uh looking at things like making sure that laws apply to everyone yes okay um and the same laws apply to everyone whereas uh beforehand you would have different sets of laws for different sec uh sections of uh uh the population hmm. again we're kind of focused on france up until now but in general like i do want to talk about europe in general and yeah that is a that is a bit of a trend under liberalism is this uh uh, equalization of the courts. Yeah, uh, it's going to be especially big under Napoleon. Actually, he's uh, he's going to have a massive impact on the uh, legal systems of most of Europe because he'll end up presiding over most of Europe for a <laughs> chunk of time there. Um, but yeah, why were you why were you asking about the courts just just out of curiosity, or were you going somewhere with that? It just uh, it seemed kind of like a through line that that to be able to you know, argue all of those things, it, it seemed very court-like, right? Yeah. Uh, the lack of emotion, the pre presentation of the facts, it's very like, here's how it is, so it should apply to everybody, right? Right. And I mean, the, the, thing to, the thing to keep in mind is that a lot of this stuff is not necessarily being argued from a legal standpoint so much as a philosophical standpoint. And yeah, uh, as those yeah. changes, and as those changes get made, they'll, they'll filter the way, their way through the legal system. If that, yeah, okay. if that makes sense. Yep. The uh, speaking of Napoleon, um, you know, he <laughs> he's sort of seen as hijacking the nascent Republican movement to some extent. Uh, it's seen as like a swing back in the wrong direction. Um, at least they've gotten rid of absolute monarchy. But like the one thing that liberalism really can't abide and, and liberals couldn't abide is a tyrant and napoleon is very much seen as that it sort of seems like he's using the trappings of liberalism in order to impose his will on all of europe and that's not this isn't a good thing this is seen as where the revolution really goes hard sideways yeah because after uh, napoleon the the bourbon monarchy is restored it's a cult it's a constitutional monarchy at that point but still it's it's restored and it's mm -hmm. kind of like well we almost had it there they were working on this this society that you know liberals would hold up afterwards as being like oh it could have been you know that meme where it's like the 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 shot of the future village and it's like you know it, you know <laughs> what the world would be like if x um, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of like that where it's like oh you know <laughs> they they rechristen rechristen notre dame as the as the the temple of reason and they made their hundred minute hours and their 10 hour days and it, you know you know it was so good it could have been so perfect and it's like well maybe not but okay I, I guess thanks napoleon yeah basically basically <laughs> um but yeah I, I think i think napoleon is especially seen i mean the 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 tyranny is is a big portion of it but it's also napoleon is seen as a bit of a an opportunity sort of a a, a crack in the armor that the the rest of europe could get a toehold in and it's kind of like well now they could come back and attack liberalism on some sort of moral ground whereas before they couldn't really say a whole lot other than we fear this um mm -hmm. liberalism is seen as like this 
dangerous idea, but like, ooh, dangerous. Not like, uh-oh, dangerous, <laughs> if that makes sense. It, t- it totally makes sense. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that in. I think it works. I think it says what I needed to say. Um, it's, it's this thing where it's like, oh, these other, these other, um, these other monarchs, they just couldn't handle the ideas. They couldn't handle being faced with the will of the people. They knew their end was near. And then Napoleon comes along and gives them a good enough reason to band together. And it's like, it puts this chilling effect on the movement for a good 20 years, 30 years even. Mm. And it's true it does chill it but like also once people get this taste of freedom they sort of don't want to go back to some extent and while governments top down really chill on liberalism there's still these ideas out there there's still these stories out there that sort of ordinary people hear you can't really suppress that stuff as much as they might have tried it gets around and in various places in europe people start talking about this idea of but what if government could come from the people? What if what people wanted or what people cared about or what mattered to people actually had an impact on the way larger groups of people work together? And this sort of all culminates in the 1848 revolutions, which are known as the springtime of nations. Yeah. In France, the constitutional monarchy is overthrown and a second republic is established. It's seen as a new day. Elsewhere in Europe, I mean, almost every nation in Europe has some level of revolution at this point. And virtually yeah. every revolution is liberal in nature. It'll often start in the cities. It'll often start with workers. But what they're asking for almost always includes a constitution. And a constitution, fundamentally, what it's trying to do is what we were talking about earlier, which is making the laws applicable to every single person. Yeah. Giving a governing document that is coming from the the will of the people to the nation as a whole to sort of state in a a broad sense, what it is that this group of people cares about, what matters to them. And almost every single uh, uh, revolution is asking for a constitution. And this is seen as like a massive success for liberalism. There's also this rise of nationalism, which is seen as an emergent phenomenon that comes out of when enough people's individual will is striving towards the same goal. And when those people sort of fall into harmony or lockstep, that's what makes a nation, uh, according to liberalism. And so as different nations sort of get a sense of themselves um, on, a, on a bigger level, they start to differentiate from one another in places that are full of lots of different nations. So places like the Balkans or places like yeah. uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they start having massive internal problems because they're trying to unite a bunch of people who just do not get along are naturally united yeah exactly exactly and so this this turn to nationalism is seen as people beginning to understand that their individual will has this collective power that you know people can enter into social contracts with one another not just accept what's been imposed on them by tyrants and Mm -hmm. if their government is tyrannical to create these new social contracts with each other to overthrow the tyrants and put in place a new government that has an equitable social contract 
as these nations put in more and more liberal concessions, economies will become less restricted because as we see these, you know, as we see these ideals of like, uh, of, of individual freedom and uh, a release of governmental control, one way that manifests is in the way that people do business, right? There's um, the, the, so like uh, tax transparency, not just tax transparency, but also on the, the ways that businesses could be restricted before the 19th century are, uh, especially through a, a system called mercantilism, um, which is essentially a, the government trying to, as much as possible, maximize uh, exports and minimize okay. and minimize imports to try and keep value flowing into the country as much as possible. Okay. That doesn't seem sustainable. <laughs> no, it's it's very difficult to to make work. <laughs> and the the other side of it is that it's not always necessarily the thing that is going to be best for business because if no. you can if you can have something manufactured further away and the difference in cost is greater than the cost of transporting it to you, then it's cheaper to get it done far away and bring it to you than it is to make it here. Now, Yay, outsourcing. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it may cost some local jobs, but I mean, was it a good job anyway if it was not making, you know, if it wasn't making good business sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the thought there. And so as laissez-faire economics, laissez-faire just means... Um, let it be, essentially. Um, yeah. You know, let, let it do what it needs to do. Laissez-faire economics come into come into vogue. It encourages innovation. It encourages um, industrialization. Uh, it uh, it encourages governments to lower those restrictions on trade, which creates um, greater international trade. And uh, the the growth in international trade makes those industries that are emerging uh, more efficient, which makes them more productive, uh, and which makes their owners much wealthier. And in general, this system ends up creating a positive feedback loop that makes liberal nations much more wealthy. And the more liberal they are, the wealthier they tend to become. There are also innovations like, say, the free press, which helps to inform the populace of what's going on. It uh, raises literacy rates, with which makes for a uh, more competent workforce. It makes for yeah. a more informed populace, a better educated populace. This encourages more people to innovate, and it feeds back into the business market. It's a really good thing for most people. What mm-hmm. it also allows people to do is is to understand how exactly government works in a way that uh, the franchise is able to be expanded to more and more uh, people in terms of voting, uh, which allows governments then to better and better represent uh, the majority of the population. Another f- positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Those emergences of national consciousness that we talked about and the improvements of liberal nations in general in Europe lead to various independence movements. There are various independence movements in former Ottoman territories in the Balkans. So, you know, for example, Serbia or Greece. Um, Okay, yeah. There's also ones that we've talked about extensively recently in Germany and Italy. These are places which were struggling to uh, assert themselves on the world stage and by becoming or by by adopting liberal policies and by you know embracing their nation their their nationalism uh were able to kind of make a mark on the world stage in a way that they weren't able to before they found a place for themselves within europe because they found a voice for the people mm-hmm. the societies became more secular which 
which in a way makes them a lot more inclusive. They become a lot more rational. While on the other hand, old empires that are kind of clinging to outdated ideas of autocracy are on rapid decline in the rest of the 19th century. Yeah. And then you get to the First World War. And what you see in, in the First World War is, you know, according to this, this person that we're making up and, and is, is leading us through this discussion, the First World War is this result of the old-fashioned world order kind of one last death rattle kind of thing, right? Okay. It's this... It's this senseless conflict that is started by an, a dying imperial conglomerate in yeah. uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, meddling in the affairs of a completely legitimate nation state uh, in Serbia. Yeah. And the um, very old and possibly ill-considered alliances that these, uh, these old states have made having a domino effect pulling all of Europe into this conflict that ends up killing tens of millions of people. And for what exactly? Why, why were people actually involved here? If they had been sensible, if they had been rational, if they had been making decisions in their own self-interest, they never would have been pulled into this. However, once the conflict is begun, success ends up being determined by the nations who are most successfully able to mobilize the production capacity of their entire society. And that tended to be the more industrialized nations, which in a lot of cases ended up being the more liberal nations. The more liberal ones, yeah. When you look at the winners of the First World War, you see republics. And when you yeah. look at the losers, you see monarchies. And one way of looking at this war is that as terrible as it was, it was a final referendum on liberalism as a successful model for basing the world on and when the dust settles liberal democracies are the ones left standing and because of that uh the war the world that's left after the war is basically up for liberal democracies to decide and what they decide to do is create a world full of self-determining nation states modeled on liberal representative democracy because that's what's been working yeah and that's the world for the last 125 years at least according to this person according to, yeah does this all make sense does this all feel fairly solid yeah it, good through line um yeah i i had a few questions pop up uh kind of through there oh, uh let's one do was it. Let's do it, and he'll answer it for you uh, based on these based on these ideals. <laughs> okay, so the would the the liberal person at this time uh, be that critical of World War One, or would they have uh, enough nationalism sort of happening that um, they would be a bit more um, supportive of it? Um, I think that one would depend a little bit more on specifically which nation they're from. Um, okay. the, the defeated nations or even the, the nations that were initially on the right, on the winning side, but ended up crumbling, like for example, Russia would tend to have yeah. a much more defeatist idea of it. When you look at a it place. It was futile. Yeah. 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 When you look at a place like France, 
they won yes but like at what cost right like it's yeah. such a such a high percentage of the casualties were french and so much of the destruction was on french soil mm-hmm. that it was sort of kind of it did sort of feel like well what did we go through all of that for um okay. you know yeah they have their own national rivalries with germany that they need to work out um kind of stretching back to the franco-prussian war and beyond but um there there is there is also a sense of futility there if you're british it sort of depends on your experience in the war in the war um the the government would say that that's just a resounding success a lot of people who fought in it would not feel that way um no the 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 experience of fighting in world war one was indescribably horrific and yeah any accounts i've ever seen are of young men marching off singing you know singing traditional songs and whatnot and you know coming back not only not only ruined by the the experience of it but also the lack of purpose behind any of it um Mm. i think people put up with things like that a little bit differently when they feel like they have um a good reason for it yeah and um trench warfare is you got to have a very 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 good reason to be involved in trench warfare and and feel like it's worth it Mm -hmm. um so yeah i i think for i think when you're talking about history in general when you're talking about governments uh when you're talking about nation level yeah there were some sides that felt like yeah we we came out of that fairly well when you're talking about the average person most people did not see uh the the first world war as a good thing um it was it was mostly uh ill-advised and um probably avoidable and wasn't avoided by the people who were supposed to avoid these things yeah okay uh you said you had other questions um nope pass <laughs> okay that's fine well why don't we take a quick break and when we uh and when we come back we'll start over again in 1789 with the french revolution except this time we will do it from uh the perspective of a socialist excellent all right we're back on hi 101 here with ethan blesky hi and so far we have talked about the stretch of time between 1789 and 1919 or so Mm -hmm. and uh next we're going to talk about 1789 to 1919 just from a different perspective and what i want to try and do here is give you an account of the exact same stretch in the exact same area just through a completely different reading of the situation i'm very excited I've, I've, we've gone over liberalism before, so it was mm-hmm. pretty familiar. I want to, I want to hear a new fresh take on it. The French Revolution was very, very disruptive to the state of, of Europe, certainly, but ultimately it's a consequence of the French monarchy's loss of control over the economy. If they had managed to keep an eye on their books properly, if they hadn't gone bankrupt trying to support the american revolution rather than their own people and uh and their inability to feed themselves um they probably wouldn't have been in the situation that they found themselves in uh in 1789 see if you really want to understand uh human nature there's this um political uh uh, philosopher named jean-jacques rousseau and rousseau will tell you that he was really interested in like the state of people before 
societies existed, what they were like in their natural state. Okay. And what Rousseau would tell you was that it's kind of silly to assume that just because people don't have a society means that they don't have any humanity. He argues that there's something innate to people um, that isn't uh, uh, necessarily wrapped up in the societal structures they build around themselves. The people are inherently, for, for lack of a better term, good. Um, that people will naturally go out of their way to help other people and that most people are benevolent. Of course, there are terrible people in the world, but by and large, human nature is a good thing. And that even in a state of complete uh, anarchy, in, in a very real sense of the word, okay. people will still go out of their way to support other human beings. We're social uh, animals. yeah, And the purpose of the state is to enhance the ways in which people are able to support other people. Because you as a, an individual can only do so much, mm -hmm. but many, many people um, coming together to help a tiny bit um, can do massive amounts uh, to, to help a single person in need. And so when we come together, um, we, we just have a lot more uh, effect. And what the state does is allow us to effectively uh, organize that assistance. The state is also there to enforce uh, social contracts, which uh, is a way of saying that the state is there to um, make sure that no individuals are taking advantage of anyone else uh, or are taking, advantages, uh, taking advantage of the apparatuses of the state in any particular way. Okay. So what you want from an ideal government, and, and Rousseau would, would note that there are, there are several different kinds of well he, he identified three types of government essentially he, he would call them monarchy aristocracy and democracy uh monarchy is when one person calls all the shots aristocracy is when some of the people call all the shots okay. and democracy was when everyone has a say okay and for him for him a representative democracy doesn't count because that's still a subset of people calling the shots so it's more of an aristocracy Yes, for, he yeah. would classify it as an aristocracy. And those classifications, by the way, go back to Plato. They're not new to him, but yeah. he's he's looking at how they fit into the framework of a social contract. And what Rousseau would say about those types of government is that a democracy might give people the most voice in their government, but it is also the most difficult one to implement in a meaningful way and becomes more difficult the more people there are, which is why it tended to be fairly successful in small city states like, you know, ancient Athens or Venice mm -hmm. and why it's much more difficult in a larger state. The more people there are, um, the more, uh, power the state has to have to keep them all in line and concentrating all of that power in a single person, uh, gives the state the most power to, uh, respond to anything that the, the people need it to do basically. Okay. Likewise, the smaller number of people there are, the less power each of them can vest into a monarch and the weaker a monarch would be. This is all really eaten up by the people who are, are leading the charge in the French Revolution. Um, mm -hmm. They don't always necessarily 
understand Rousseau, though, at this point in time. See, they read Rousseau and they say that they like Rousseau, but what they end up doing is implementing something that looks a lot much, a lot more like Locke in that what Rousseau is saying here is that literally everyone needs to have the same number of rights. But while the French Revolution is talking a big game about um, liberty, fraternity, equality, the first thing they do is go and set up two different types of citizenship, active and inactive. Active citizens are people who own property because that's very important to liberals. Uh, they only want people who are in some way improving the country to have a say in it because their thinking is that if you are wealthy enough to own property, that means that you are rational enough to have made good enough decisions to improve a piece of land. And that makes you mm. smart enough to be a leader in the government. Inactive citizens still have rights, don't get them wrong, but they don't have the same number of rights as active citizens. And does that really sound like equality to us? Mm. No. There, and it's to the point where there are clashes between active and inactive citizens during the French Revolution over, oh, interesting. over, over specifically which rights inactive citizens have access to. Because if these are universal rights of man, um, why don't they apply to all men universally? It seems like an easy question, but liberals will tie themselves in knots trying to answer it. Hmm. So the crown goes bankrupt. And the Industrial Revolution is already in full swing in, in, in England. And uh, the world is just changing in the level of interconnectedness. You know, liberal, liberals will love to point to the liberalization of society as the thing that changes the economy, but it was already on the way out. Just look at the timelines. We were already ending mercantilism. We were moving away from, you know, uh, having colonies as being a massive uh, uh, driving force in the economy uh, mm -hmm. by by the end of the 18th century. And what happens in the uh, in the French Revolution is that a large group of the bourgeoisie, which is kind of the upper middle class to the upper class, people who are wealthy enough to own property, what they see is an opportunity to take some of that economic power away from the crown, who had shown itself to be completely incapable of managing it, and spreading that power around to more of them, but not all of them, just the ones that are wealthy enough to participate. Hmm. Enlightenment ideals are invoked as justification for all of this, but realistically, when you look at most conflicts in human history, there is some level of class inherent in all of this. There's going to be some clash between people of different societal statuses, and that's just because our interests tend to align not necessarily along national lines, but economic ones you are much more similar to a person who makes about the same amount of money as you and does the same job as you in another country than you are to someone who is 10 times wealthier than you but lives down the street from you. Now, they don't necessarily want you feeling that way. They want you to align with your countrymen because that's helpful when they need to go to war with each other. But when it, when it comes down to it, these economic concerns are a, a much bigger driver than necessarily ideas. After all, Enlightenment ideas have been around for like a century. Why now? Like, why does it take the economic crisis for things to turn over in France? Maybe because it's not entirely about the ideas. 
make sense. <laughs> Britain's been liberalizing for decades now. And a lot of that is coming out of the fact that they had their own revolution back in the uh, 17th century. And what comes out of it is the constitutional monarchy that they've been working with ever since. Um, yeah. You know, they, they liberalize very slowly, but they liberalize ahead of a lot of the rest of Europe. And they've been implementing these uh, these Enlightenment ideas just very, very slowly. It didn't take a revolution for them to put them in place. And they still have a monarch, and they're still one of the most liberal places in Europe up until the French Revolution. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, once the French Revolution is over and Napoleon is defeated, they'll continue to be one of the most liberal places for a good chunk of the 19th century. Yeah. All with a monarch. Yeah. You can look at these preoccupations with property. You can look at these preoccupations with uh, exclusivity. You can look at the terrible track record that these third estate people have with gender equality, with racial equality, mm -hmm. with their treatment of uh, overseas colonies. Like None of that stuff really lines up with what they're saying, but okay, fine. Quick question. Yeah. You just mentioned the third estate again. Uh, from a socialist point of view at this time, would the third estate just be the bourgeoisie? The third estate is a classification that's being imposed by the first estate, so it doesn't really matter necessarily. To, to a socialist in 1919, it's a yeah. it's still kind of a historical concept, but they would most, most likely look at it as a bourgeoisie concept because they would say that no real working class were actually included in any of the decision making that went into the creation of the National Assembly out of the third estate. So they can claim to represent 98% of the people, but in reality, it's a small number of very wealthy people uh, who are just shy of the uh, uh, classification of aristocracy that are, uh, that are calling the shots here. <laughs> okay. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Isn't it fun to put your, yourself in the in the mindset of these different groups? It's it's interesting how you can really rationalize a lot of different things in very different ways once you kind of like sink into it a little bit. Yeah. I, I was just laughing that I accidentally got ahead of myself last section by asking if the third estate was merchant class. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing. Like the, 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 the thing that I'm doing here is that I'm very deliberately leaving out specific things in in some of these cases as much as i am spinning things right that's yep, that's absolutely that's that's important to this process um, absolutely and anyways back to my explanation as a socialist in 1919 of how the 19th century went um uh -huh. the rise of nationalism honestly as as we as we mentioned is as much a distraction uh, as anything else, it's uh, it's a it's a byproduct of the fact that the monarchies of Europe have lost the monopoly on legitimate power um, through the rise of liberalism. It's a reaction against this process that basically comes from a fear that if allegiances to um, aristocracies and monarchies fades, people might finally realize what I mentioned earlier about how they might just be more similar to the people that they're being forced to fight on the battlefields than they are to leaders that are telling them to go fight. Yeah. What's more, liberalism pits individuals against one another in uh, attempts to acquire enough property to gain political power. All of a sudden, it's created this sort of rat race 
of uh, how you need to live your life, scrabbling together enough resources to finally become one of the powerful ones to have a say in the direction of things. Where before you just never really had an opportunity, now they've kind of given everybody a bit of a crumb. Like, well, this could be you if you work hard enough. It's like a simulated conflict or created conflict. Right, exactly. All, yeah. all of which distracts from the fact that the the very top echelons of society have all of the resources and mm-hmm. they have yeah. more than enough to share with every single person, but they won't because that would require giving up their own resources, right? Yeah. The other thing that liberalism does is that it erodes people's social obligations to one another. At least before, people felt that they had an obligation to look out for their neighbors, right? But... As people move away from the uh, towns that their families may have resided in for centuries in some cases, as they move Mm -hmm. into cities, as social bonds erode, as institutions like the church become less powerful, as uh, you're forced to spend every waking hour working for paltry wages just to keep your family alive, you don't really have time to think about those more important things on a societal level you are in survival mode you need to fight yeah and you're just conserving resources like this is this is getting so scared that your fingertips get cold your blood flow just went to the core right like you Mm -hmm. are and all of this is being done with this veneer of well this is freedom you have the freedom to do all these things we're allowing these things to happen we're not standing in the way of you acquiring greatness if you work hard enough but is the system always necessarily set up for people to succeed or is it just set up for them to be exploited uh to a greater and greater extent while the people at the top become richer and richer it's a feedback loop kind of a negative one huh yeah The 1848 revolutions were mainly about trying to gain those universal rights that liberalism has been promising for all of this time and actually distribute it to as many citizens as possible. These revolutions almost exclusively start with uh, riots about the abysmal conditions of workers in urban centers. The Industrial Revolution is devastating on the general well-being of the European population. People are working 12 to 16-hour days, six days a week most of the time, um, for paltry wages, can be fired at a moment's notice, have almost no health uh, and safety uh, protections in place. And all Mm -hmm. of this is in, again, the name of uh, a, a free market where anyone could become rich, I suppose. Not everyone does. Yeah. There's a minor economic crisis in 1847 that precipitates these revolutions. There's also a famine in 1847 that leaves workers hungry. It leaves food prices high because there are no controls on that. And the average worker in Europe was spending over half of their wages on food. Just full stop food. Never mind places to live. Never mind anything else. Medicine? Sorry, no. You're just trying to keep your belly full. And that's why people rioted, for better working conditions. At first, liberals aligned with these goals in trying to push against the uh, conservative governments of Europe. But as these concrete concerns are co-opted and rebranded by the liberals, 
the socialists tend to be, or, or the workers at this point, socialism is one of those words that it's, it's barely really being realized as its own thing uh, in the 1840s. I mean, Marx publishes the Communist Manifesto in 1848 during the very, very early days of this uh, revolution to the point that it's not addressed in the manifesto. But these goals of pushing back against these conservative governments, they're they're supported by the liberals at first, but as the liberals gain their own concerns, that solidarity disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, they stop standing up for the things that the uh, socialists are looking for. Once they've got some sort of constitution, no matter how conservative it is, they tend to stop fighting and basically go, well, we should work with this government. You know, change is incremental. We can't rush things along. Yeah. Which is interesting because there's a lot of people who aren't feeling terribly free right now. Nope. But at the same time, it tends not to be workers who are concerned with these things. It's uh, it's the bourgeoisie. Those are the those are the people with uh, that are that are really pushing the liberal ideals. And once they've gotten what they want, they're all about moderation and about things taking their own time. Let the free market play. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the invisible hand was originally like a considered a bad thing like adam smith was not like "Ooh, the invisible hand of the free market is is a wonderful thing that keeps it no he was saying like yeah the 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 market's very volatile and things can go really really badly um (laughs) adam smith gets this rap as like a a very pro capitalism uh philosopher when in fact a lot of the stuff that he was doing was warning about some of the pitfalls of uh, a truly free market interesting i've I've mostly heard of quoted the opposite way yeah 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 and that's generally how he's represented but yeah it's not it's not quite true uh (laughs) there's a little more nuance there than than that after the betrayals of 1848 uh largely disenfranchised workers uh started organizing extra politically because they found or they felt that there was very little chance of success through um traditional political means and by traditional i mean things that have only really been around for 60 years or so but you know what i mean it doesn't it doesn't seem like um the government's going to change of its own accord and so they begin forming trade unions and using these unions to collectively bargain for workers rights and advocate for uh all of these things that uh really haven't been in place for workers up until now and uh for the most part capitalists tended to prefer hiring people to bust those unions with uh, violence and intimidation rather than probably spending about the same amount of money to just meet those people's demands and give them a slightly higher standard of living fun enter the pinkertons yeah exactly i mean mostly an american phenomenon but yeah that's that's exactly what we're talking about here yeah um the deregulation of markets just led to worsening market conditions uh, or sorry, wor- wor- uh, worsening uh, working conditions. Um, yeah. It also led to a rapid growth in international exploitation. A lot of this economic success um, in the in the se- second half of the 19th century coincides with the scramble for Africa, in which, in a second wave of colonialism, uh, European powers carved up Africa, looking to uh, strip out any resources they could find. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's a. Uh, it, with deregulation comes virtually any behavior that people can come up with that will make them wealthy. And and in this case, it manifested in, in the form of international exploitation rather than exploitation at home, uh, because yeah. you could make a lot more that way. And people turned much, uh, much blinder eyes that way. 
there's also the opening of Asian markets through force. Uh, this is where you get things like the opium wars in China, right? Yeah. Or um, you know the the forcing open of uh, of Japan in the 1860s, um, mm-hmm. basically going to war with countries for the right to sell things in them the 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 act of hostility against um protectionism um yeah this is all a very violent process in the in the name of uh industrialization and and uh accumulation of wealth it also comes with uh robust uh, criticism of liberalism and capitalism uh on one side of the coin you have uh marx and engels working on uh capital on the other side you have uh anarchists like uh bakunin um there are also movements like uh the catholic social justice movements or or social justice movements in in other religions as well but the catholic one is quite prominent talking about the pitfalls of liberalism about the uh the trouble of of giving everybody a lot of rights and very few responsibilities of making society's ills really no one's problem and when it comes to you know Marx and Engels looking at and finally identifying some of these uh, economic underpinnings of the workings of history, and uh, how many things can be interpreted through that lens. Yeah, most conceptions of socialism by now have been more or less theoretical, with a few exceptions like the Paris Commune. Um, yeah, but you know they're trying to work out how a more equitable government or society could work and a lot of what it comes down to is a criticism of this uh, obsession with private property this idea that holding a a piece of of land should give you um, sole dominion over it this idea that people who don't actually work you know kind of in contravention to their hero law people that aren't working and aren't producing something tangible are the ones who are benefiting the most from that work by purchasing labor through the through 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 wages Mm -hmm. but those people also being interested in perpetuating a system where um it's not really possible to gain your own property through your own work uh so that you're forced to stay tied to those wages forever it's it's they're pointing out the fact that it's a rigged game and they're saying like there are better ways of doing this um if someone isn't working they shouldn't gain wealth from that work or the work of others um what they're saying is that if you work you should see the benefits of it and all of the benefits not just some okay yep they're also saying that if rights are truly universal they should apply to all people equally but likewise, so should responsibilities. And so we should work at making uh, uh, a society that is um, more equitable, not just more equal. We want to make sure that uh, people are adequately supported, that people are adequately pulling their weight. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really what they're pushing for on all of this stuff. There are a lot of socialist uh, um, initiatives to, uh, you know, things like uh, putting in place the eight-hour workday. That's uh, yeah. all the work of socialists through labor unions. Advancing uh, women's rights. That's mainly socialists. The rights of children. That's socialists, but it's also social justice movements. Um, a okay. lot of the more progressive elements of uh, early 20th century society and late 19th century society are being pushed by either socialists or religious groups who are interested in social justice. And 
I, I do very much want to draw a parallel between those things because, and, and so with this person in 1919, because there is this image of socialism as being particularly morally bankrupt, um, mainly because of the specific association of the Soviet Union and its policy of atheism. But that's not necessarily true. Some of the most ardent collectivist movements in Europe and in North America are being made by religious groups. Um, Interesting. It's seen as uh, very much like in line with uh, the teachings of the Bible to, you know, love your neighbor and that sort of thing. You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of very, uh, uh, socialist messages that you could pull out of the Bible, um, without yeah. really looking all of that, all, all that hard. Um, yeah. as organized action by labor increases, uh, and more and more sophisticated unions go in place, they incrementally win battles here and there, small little victories that will advance, uh, the the plight of workers in Europe, all while revolutionaries are working in the background trying to basically replicate what happened in the French Revolution or in 1848. But this time, instead of uh, advancing liberalism or the Enlightenment as the ideal at the core of this overthrow of society, they're hoping to make socialism the new core of society. Okay. The First World War badly fractured the socialist movement. And it's maybe not quite for the same reasons that you would think initially. Basically, okay. the number of socialist groups that come out the other side of the First World War has grown tremendously, and their aims have split quite a bit. The problem with all of it comes down to the last episode we did, which is the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. And one of the key takeaways I wanted to have from the Russian Revolution was the fact that while basically everything leading up to the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks were very like typical, um, if uh, idealistic uh, socialist group, as soon as it looked like they were losing the very first election ever to the social revolutionaries, they overthrew the government and put in place a dictatorship. Yeah. And that means that the Bolshevik revolution is two things at the same time. One, yeah. one very successful, and two, a complete betrayal of socialist ideals. Mm -hmm. And so how do you react to that? Some groups are going to want to follow that success, and in doing so, want to fall in line with Leninism. Other groups are going to want to denounce the Bolshevik movement, but by doing so, they're putting themselves in direct opposition to literally the most successful socialist group in the entire world. The only one that's ever won power. Yeah, it's a tricky situation. <laughs> you also have the fact that liberalism over the course of the 19th century has steadily continued moving left very, very slowly. Yeah, they're slowly widening enfranchisement to slowly larger and larger bits of the population. Now, it's still being capped by wealth levels, by property ownership, by gender, mm -hmm. by race in some cases. Uh, citizenship requirements can be very convoluted. Uh, it can yep. be very easy to be excluded from the vote. But, you know, it's better than nothing, I guess. Uh, it's not a socialist's <laughs> conception of democracy. Uh, no. <laughs> it's not Rousseau's conception of democracy. But the trouble here is that as they 
very slowly widen enfranchisement as they very slowly put in place a little bit more in the way of social supports, you know? Oh, great. We're not making children under five work anymore. Well, what a victory for <laughs> what a victory for freedom. Um, but the problem is traditionally in Europe, the most radical movement had been the socialists. Yeah. Anyone who was dissatisfied with the current order of things was socialist of some stripe. And as society in general moved further left, more and more people stopped identifying as socialist and more became or began identifying as liberal. Because once socialism was not the only place to find the things that matter to someone, once mm-hmm. everything that matters to somebody can be found within liberalism, the yeah. uh, ubiquity and the relative respectability of liberalism is a much more comfortable fit than the constant agitation against the order of things uh, that comes yeah. with socialism. And so it was bleeding the the movement. So on one hand, the furthest right of the socialists were just stopping, were no longer identifying as socialists. They sort of felt that society had progressed to the point where we no longer needed to overthrow anything. It was good enough. And the further right one, and the further left ones are being fractured by these different directions that socialism could go. Yeah. That what you end up with is a whole bunch of different parties that sort of want the same thing, but are no longer united in direction and in vision. The fear of the Bolsheviks also soured the reputation of socialists uh, among the rest of Europe. There is this idea that as soon as you wanted anything of a socialist bent, that you might be a Bolshevik and you might be interested in overthrowing the, the government. Our friend in 1919 might not necessarily want to be uh, a Bolshevik revolution, mm-hmm. but he's probably feeling the um, uh, the rejection that comes along with that reputation, whether or not he identifies yeah. with it. He's, yeah, being, okay. he's being pushed to the fringes in a way that socialism really hasn't been on the fringes in a long time. Um, it's gone from a thing that moves all of society further left to a thing that is considered a danger to society. And this person might blame uh the bolsheviks for betraying the the revolution he might blame conservatives for not understanding the differences he might blame you know there's there's so many different ways that he can kind of direct his his ire about all of this but yeah the fact is he feels beset on all sides um by different viewpoints none of which seem to necessarily resonate directly with him And the First World War is such a bitter disappointment to him because on one side you're seeing, again, these last gasps of like these dinosaurs of, of, uh, of empires, um, Mm -hmm. crumbling and, and trying to take as many people with them. It sort of seems like, and on the other hand, what should have been a, a celebration for him um, in, in the form of a, a, a socialist government being put in place in, in Russia, immediately yeah. soured by the fact that it's the Bolsheviks who pull it off. 
Now, that's not necessarily true for every socialist. Some of them would be more than happy to uh, go along with the Bolsheviks. But I think it's a much more common experience to be in the spot that I'm describing here, where it's kind of like it's kind of like when you're driving, where what's the George Carlin quote about everyone that's faster than you is a maniac and everyone that's slower than you is an idiot? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like that, except for socialism. <laughs> except for socialism. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's that's where we're going to leave things because we're we're caught up to speed with uh, with this with this particular. Uh, person this is this is the the world that they're now in it's uh you know the the bolshevik civil war is or the, the russian civil war is still ongoing the outcome is yeah. uh not certain but it's decidedly leaning towards the bolsheviks yeah. and uh the war is over but at what cost and liberalism is stronger than ever it, he's not necessarily particularly happy about that and mm-hmm. what comes next so did you have any questions about uh, this particular one or, in retrospect, anything about liberalism? I don't, I don't think anything's come up. I, I followed that pretty, pretty closely. Okay, that's good. And you see what I mean where we just talked about the exact same series of things, but from a completely different, different lenses. And neither of these are necessarily untrue. That's that's the other thing I want to be very very clear about. I'm not making anything up here. Um, no, we're just focusing on different things by bringing different things into the frame. We're choosing which ones are important and which ones aren't to mm-hmm. our story. And by including them in the story at all, we are making those things important. And yeah, that's really what's happening. But when you look at this person and when you look at the uh, liberal person that we talked about in the first section. They're living in very different worlds right now. Their priorities are completely different, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the things that they care about and the things that they feel threatened by are completely yep. different. Um, the third section that we're going to do is going to be probably the most challenging, mostly because there really isn't a lot of this viewpoint left in the world at all. It's essentially extinct. Okay. But when we come back, we are going to talk about the exact same time period one more time. Uh, but in this uh, this time around, we are going to do it from the viewpoint of a true 19th century conservative. So we'll be right back. Back on HI 101 here with Ethan Blesky. Hi. And we have one more person that we want to talk to about the uh the state of the 19th century and this one is going to espouse a viewpoint of uh classical conservatism which isn't really a view that exists anymore or not not i shouldn't say that it doesn't exist at all but it's it's very very limited in its application and it's very very rare that you would find someone who feels that way necessarily about things yeah, I, w- I was going to say, I, th- I feel like I'm going to understand this one less than the other two. Yeah, and I mean, there's a reason... I might have I, more questions. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a reason that I left it for last, too, right? I wanted to kind of warm up to it. Yeah. Because, yeah, this this one is the, the one that I have a little bit harder time getting into the mindset of. That being said, we're, we're going to do our best to, to ease you into it. Um, because I, I, I do think that it's important when we're talking about fascism to be able to get to a spot where you can understand why people might have made decisions that they made, even if you don't agree with the decisions themselves. 
Absolutely. And that's not to absolve anything about fascism, obviously, but like, I do, I do really want to get to a point where we can move past the question of like, oh, but how could anyone, you know, how could anyone go for this sort of thing? Yeah. Lots of people did. And I, I don't think, I don't think that's as good a question as, you know, why was this attractive to so many people? We can't, you know, sort of pretend like it's, it's unthinkable. It happened. Let's analyze how it happened. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, this is our third one. I should note, and, and maybe I should have noted this like an hour ago, but you know, the words liberalism and conservatism, especially in North American politics have a very different connotation than what we're talking about today. But we're talking about people who are viewing politics through uh, an early 20th century lens, which, you know, in one sense is a very, very short time ago. And in another sense, is an entire world ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, liberalism is in a lot of ways more akin to like neoconservatism in, in North America today. Um, mm-hmm. My understanding is that the um, European usage of, of liberalism is closer to a, a classical liberalism uh, like we're talking about. But here, liberalism okay. tends to ret- refer to a slightly more center left party. Um, yeah which is kind of a confusing thing for everybody. But when it comes to classical conservatism, oh my goodness, I'm going to get tongue tied on this one. When it comes to (laughs) classical conservatism, we're talking about people who have a very, very old idea of how the world works. And it it really doesn't come about anymore. So I think we might as well just dig dig into this and, and you'll pick it up as we go along. Okay. So the French Revolution... Uh, was an absolute disaster for humanity. It really, really was. The amount of disruption that has, you know, that it directly caused and indirectly caused was so disproportionate to the actual grievances of anyone involved that it sort of makes one wonder if it was really worth the amount of trouble that that came of it. I mean, if you really, really, really want to understand human beings... What you want to do is read this uh, political philosopher. His name was Thomas Hobbes. And Hobbes was trying to get to the bottom of, you know, like what human beings are really, really like, like their base nature. And what Hobbes decided was that human beings in their natural state were barely better than animals. You may have heard the the, the phrase uh, before, nasty, brutish, and short, uh, which uh, is yep. Yep. which is uh, how uh, Hobbes characterized the lives of people before the invention of society, before the invention of government. Mm-hmm. See, Hobbes was correct in identifying the fact that human beings tend to thrive best under hierarchies under authority of some sort people do well when they're being told what to do people with too much choice in front of them tend to struggle with paralysis indecision it can be tricky you know it's the whole thing where used to be you go to the grocery store there's only like three kinds of pasta sauce you know which one is the best (laughs) one right yeah it may not be the best pasta sauce in the world but you know which one's best of those three that's the one you get now you go to the store. How many different kinds are there? 30, 40? You pick one. It's good. Was it the best one? You'll never know. 
<laughs> rules, there's comfort in rules. People do better. I, I mean, especially these days, right? With work from home and things like that. I think people are really coming to appreciate the value of, of having a good uh, routine, a good schedule. Um, yeah. When you don't have those things in place, you can feel a little unmoored, I suppose. Yeah. Um, being sense. able to depend on something, some regularity, some uh, predictability is good for people's mental well-being. It's good for their happiness. And, you know, that is is something that is is very common across virtually all human societies. Like, sure, there's been the odd experiment and other types of government, but no matter where you look in the world, it tends to be that people knowing what their place is in the world seems to result in the most stable societies. See, the thing about civilization, the thing about order, the thing about safety is that it's a tenuous thing. It's much more fragile than most people would like to think about. Because when you realize how fragile it is you also realize how easily it can be tipped and most people don't want to be in a position where they're making that call where they could be the ones doing the tipping most people aren't cut out for it and because of that most people are happier not really needing to contribute to those decisions It's best if we leave that type of decision to the kind of people who are made of the stuff that allow them to make the right decisions. And the way that you do that is through specialization. Um, When people work together in societies, the, the way that you get improvement over just a bunch of people working side by side is, is through specialization, right? You want to, have some people who are very good at a specific thing and not necessarily all that great at other things rather than a whole bunch of people who are just okay at everything. That's how you get better. This is a, it's not a, it's not a controversial thing. It is a thing that exists in nature. It's the reason people have left and right hands. You get better dexterity in one hand if the other one gets worse. The idea that Certain people are trained from a very young age to be the right kind of person to protect the rest of society. That's just good delegation. Okay. The real trouble with the French Revolution is that the people who were supposed to be in charge, the people who were supposed to look after French society, they failed. And that's after having nearly a thousand years of this training of, of, of working uh, generation to generation to cultivate the sort of people who would be good at this sort of thing. And that should really just go to show you how fragile these balances can be. But they failed. Okay. And what ended up happening was liberalism sort of snuck in the cracks of society. And they convinced people that they all know better they know they all know just as well as anybody else how things should be run and you know that's a bold claim to make society is one of those things that it's kind of too important a project to tinker in carelessly uh very slow incremental change is much safer conservatism is 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 fundamentally a um cautious strategy towards the world in general 
and politics yes. in particular. And yeah. for good reason. I mean, the the idea that uh, tried tested um, measures are a safer bet than striving out on uh, new uncharted waters is not is, is again a kind of a common sense sort of thing if you know it's worked before why try something that you don't know whether it's worked especially when everything hangs in the balance mm-hmm. it's easier to have a foundation to build upon exactly liberalism on the other hand is a project in narcissism it's telling people that they matter more than anyone else. They matter enough that they can put themselves ahead of everybody else and at the cost of everybody else, that they have the right to do so, and that somehow everybody putting themselves first is going to be good for a society. It completely abandons the idea of unity within a society. Okay. The liberals would tell you that once enough people are working through rational self-interest that because there's some objectivity to rationality, they'll all come to similar conclusions and that nationality will spontaneously generate from that, which will uh, somehow encompass the general will of all of those people. But the problem with all of that is that it really assumes that all people are perfectly rational. And like, have you met people? People aren't people aren't rational. They're not. They 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 there's so much more that goes into people's day-to-day decisions. Even when they think they're being perfectly rational, they're often making terrible, terrible logical mistakes. Um, it's very, very easy to trick a person. And that's ignoring the fact that most people are unable to keep emotion out of very important decisions. And What's more, why should they? Isn't it denying our humanity to argue that people are capable of completely divorcing themselves from their emotions and from their experiences to form some sort of objective, logical, rational reality? Okay. This isn't even like a fringe idea. Like there's an entire reaction against the Enlightenment. It's known as romanticism like it's a, it's a major political artistic movement that rejects the idea that everything is knowable it rejects the idea that everything is uh, measurable it embraces the fact that um, some things are simply subjective some things are aesthetic some things are irrational and that's okay some things are unknowable yeah and And uh, romanticism works its way into many, many aspects of life. In fact, the entire nationalism movement in in certain ways is based on romanticism, right? It's based in in this romanticized idea of your fellow countrymen. It's based in this idea that somehow you can spontaneously just live in harmony, despite the fact that any rational examination of that completely rejects that, that notion. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. You can't have the exact same goals as someone else because you're not that same person. So the revolution in France, um, its correction back to Bonapartism uh, fundamentally demonstrates that, well, two things. Number one, that there's a necessity for structure in people's lives. When they tried removing the monarchy and uh, basically saying, well, everyone's free to do what they like, there's 
many, many rights and very few responsibilities. What happened? The reign of terror happened. They started executing everyone who blinked the wrong way. They started tearing yeah. down the uh, scaffolding on which French society is built. They expelled the church. They tore down cathedrals. They um, removed uh, noble families who had been caring for these lands for centuries, who had mm -hmm. deep institutional knowledge of how these things are run and said, basically, anyone has the exact same ability to do this as those people. It throws a wrench into the fabric of society, which is usually like a kind of hyperbolic thing to say, but in the French Revolution is is kind of very much exactly what happened and very intentionally. So the main difference between liberals and, and conservatives on that point is that liberals did so with glee and conservatives watched on in horror because, mm -hmm. again, they understand the fragility of all of this. And what ends up happening? Terror. Thousands of people are killed. Tens of thousands of people are killed. And for what? So we can change the calendar a little bit? Ultimately, what ends up happening is power still remains in the hands of a small number of people. They've just lost authority. And by authority, I mean both the understanding of how to wield power, but also the legitimacy of power that comes with lasting for a long time and the trust of the people. Okay, yep. See, conservatives don't reject the idea of the consent of the governed necessarily. They just question whether or not the consent of the governed is the the start point and the end point of good governance. It's important that the people feel protected. There is a social contract that exists in government. And the contract is this, that the people support the government and contribute to society. And in turn, the government protects the people from their, natu their natural state of brutishness, of constantly yeah. being at war with one another. Because they look at what Locke said about freedom in the natural state with horror. That sounds terrible. Fighting tooth and nail to protect every single scrap of belongings that you have pure chaos, no way to live. So the deal is that the people put their lives into the hands of the government. Okay. And the government watches over them and protects them and makes good decisions for them, like a parent for a child. Yeah. Because the understanding of the people, uh, their understanding of the government is like unto a child's. They don't understand it. And similarly to a child, they may not always like the decisions of the parent, but it may be for their own good. There's a reason you're not allowed to eat all the candy that you would like. There's a reason you're not allowed to stay up as late as you would like, as much as you might be opposed to it as a child. Someday you might understand. The, uh, the early 19th century is spent trying to undo the damage of the revolution. But unfortunately, as we as we discussed, uh, civilization can be a fragile enough fragile enough thing that once enough people kind of get this idea of self-centeredness uh, through liberalism, of this idea that they can put themselves ahead of the rest of their fellow people by rejecting tradition and uh, adopting 
um, liberalism, yeah, that is a that is a dangerous idea. They'll put forth this concept of you know progress through science through technology, but what liberals fail to acknowledge in many cases is that progress is not always a good thing. Progress is very much held up as a self-inherently good thing in liberalism, and that's not necessarily true. Just look at the Industrial Revolution. Sure, this is progress, and then now we can make a lot more of things a lot faster than we used to make them, mm -hmm. but whose lives does this improve, really? Like, who, who, who does this benefit, really? Is it the people? Because I'm not seeing a lot of happy people going in and out of those factories. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of miserable people. I'm seeing a lot of people who are sick. I'm seeing a lot of people who are poor. I'm seeing a lot of people who, under a previous form of government, may have owned their own property that now do not. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of people who have had to move away from their communities, who maybe don't really recognize a sense of community anymore, okay. um, who are discontent, who are fed up with their their circumstances. And who is this benefiting and I mean the answer is the few people who are fortunate enough to own factories who are wealthy enough to own factories yeah. but what kind of grift is this likewise there's socialists looking at this and saying the same thing but socialism is 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 its own kind of dangerous because you know whereas liberalism is attacking community socialism is attacking authority and that's its mm -hmm. own sort of problem we we can't like th those two things go hand in hand a, a community needs to be united by a strong leader or else it fractures and that's where the the objection to socialism comes in is that it's that authority it's that trust from below that's missing it's the legitimacy of rule you can't just say that any single person would be good enough to unite the the community because there's no singularity of purpose there's no singularity of direction that way there's an illusion of it there's a hope of it but that's not necessarily the same as having a strong uh guiding hand yeah when you get to 1848 it kind of shows conservatives that they're not likely to remain politically relevant without making some changes for a conservative this isn't a failure of conservatism so much as it is yet again another indication of that fragility of the state of things because conservatism is very much like a an agrarian uh concept in a lot of ways both in where it does best and in the type of life it um idealizes okay yeah um you know the the, the conservative concept of a well-lived life is very much in uh you know small towns in owning farms in being part of a small parish in uh a relationship with a local aristocrat yeah it doesn't really have room in it for urban centers and no partially that's because of the way the philosophy exists and partially that's because conservatism itself finds urbanism to be a perversion it doesn't play well in either direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, they, they just don't see this as a good way for people to be living. And again, when you look at 19th century cities, I mean, they got a point. Kind of wasn't. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of they, they kind of have a point here. And, and <laughs> you, you see, as a conservative, you see the 19th century as this series of 
institutions being wantonly disassembled, you know, in, in varying levels of violence. You have the the loss of the the papacy's uh, temporal powers. Mm-hmm. In in previous episodes, we talked about the effects of evolution on the sort of the worldview of things. Um, yeah, we you know there there are so many um, government processes that are eating away into what they would see as a natural order of things, and that natural order is very much like an extension of. Uh, like the medieval great chain of being sort of idea, but that's okay, not yep. necessarily how they would also they would they would they would uh, characterize it. It's 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 more that there is a natural order to things, and that yeah. there's a way that we have tried and tried and tried so many different ways over so many years, and that we've come to like through experimentation to find that this structure of authority is the best system of government that we've managed to find for the most this one's people stable this one works exactly yeah and 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 provides the best life for the most people okay yep and it very much has a, a conception of uh lower class people as being kind of either or sometimes even simultaneously dim-witted and uh uh savage okay you know, people would rise up and, and rebel and they weren't entirely sure why or people would, uh, you know, make decisions that seem strange to someone who's very well off because they're in dire straits. And it's it's <laughs> it's it's kind of a bit of a disconnect between those levels of class, but they're not seeing that as necessarily a class problem so much as a quality of person problem. Gotcha. Yep. And yeah, it's paternalistic in both senses of the word it's both that they feel a duty towards protecting these people and it's patronizing it's you know like it's it's looking down on them very much so yeah yeah anyway we talked about 1848 kind of showing that it's likely not going to survive in its current form mainly because of that urbanization remember that most of these revolutions started with urban workers and that's uh, that that's just a symptom of of the the evils of urbanization for someone that's conservative. They're just saying like, we'll see, this is exactly what we warned against. You concentrate too many people away from their communities, away from their families, and it's going to create this discontentment. People aren't meant to live this way. People aren't meant to be this way. Of course, it's going to turn violent. That being said, it's stripping more and more power away from conservative leaders and so they've got to do something to survive so they begin adopting certain liberal ideas very very slowly while actively attempting to hinder uh overly radical progress so okay for example fine if we have to have representative democracies let's have representative democracies i guess can we make it so only aristocracy or former aristocracy is involved in the democratic process because at least that still replicates the power structures of the former system it's a continuation exactly yeah 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 so maybe it's not looking exactly the way it was but at least the people who know how to be in power are still in power it's a facsimile of the thing it may play more to the you know the fad ideas of the time but when you get down to the like the bare like levers of power it's still the same people pulling them gotcha yeah they also begin looking to nationalism as a unifying force 
sure, the liberals are for some reason taking credit for the idea of nationalism, and it's kind of being done as a way to like replace old ideas of sovereignty and allegiance. Mm -hmm. But it's more or less falling along those same lines. Basically, whoever you used to be a subject of, that's probably who you feel nationalistic towards. So maybe we foster those ideas a little bit. Maybe we continue to encourage people to feel uh, uh, devoted to their nations in a similar way that we would have uh, uh, encouraged them to feel devoted to their aristocrats, their leaders. They still tended to hold out hope that the autocratic empires of Europe would eventually be able to impose order once again and possibly undo some of the harm that's been done by modernization. Okay. Because modernization continues to look more and more ugly, both from like what it's doing to people as human beings and like just aesthetically as well. There's this idea that yeah. like modernization is is just hideous and there's something kind of soul wrenching about that. And again, I, I direct you to 19th century factories. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, there, there's, there's a strong point to be made there. Yeah. I, maybe I forgot to talk about this the last time. There was a, uh, there was a massive financial crisis in 1873. This, this crisis kind of shows that like, okay, well maybe this laissez-faire, um, economy works well for some people, but even for the people it's working well for, it can go really badly. Yeah. Maybe we should be protecting our economies again. Maybe we should be going back to a place where um, the government is putting its thumb on the, the, the scale a little bit for the good of the people. Are we really so concerned about a few people getting extravagantly wealthy that we're willing to sacrifice the economy of the entire nation for it? By the time you get to the First World War, especially by the time you get to the end of the First World War, most of these ideas have become extremely difficult to reconcile for all the same reasons that we've already talked about, right? Okay. The things about the balance of governments in Europe have clearly failed in the First World War. There's no one arguing that the, the, the First World War was a success for the old system. And what's more, yeah. all, of the, all of the governments that we were, you were kind of hoping would come back and start restoring some of that order have fallen. I mean, one of the strongest uh, autocratic rulers in Europe was uh, the Russian Tsar, and uh, we know how that turned out. Not well. Uh, but it's not just him that's fallen. It's the, um, it's the German Empire. It's the Austrian Empire, which is the former Holy yep. Roman Empire. The Ottoman Empire is gone. Like, these are all the places that we thought might bring back some order to things and they've all crumbled and they've all crumbled because of a situation of their own making. That's also not really up for that much argument. There are conspiracy theories about how the whole thing was lost. There's significant <laughs> conspiracy theories about it, but I mean, that's what happens sometimes when things go so badly that it challenges your worldviews. It's called cognitive yeah. dissonance. If you're faced with evidence that uh, something you believe is wrong, it's easier to... Uh, uh, come up with an alternate solution. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, the traditional monarchies come out looking extremely weak. Conservatism is uh, weaker than it's ever been as a viewpoint. The idea mm -hmm. of a natural order of things 
um, while still obviously like very attractive, like, I mean, it is, it is legitimately comforting to have an idea of where you fit in the world. And the modern age is not doing a good job of giving people that. But the problem is there's nothing really to point to as a normalcy anymore. Anything that was quote unquote normal seems to be gone. And so where do you turn to for that normalcy? And that's kind of where we leave things in, in 1919 with that conservative viewpoint. It's, it's virtually uh, extinct. It's, going to, it's, it's the sort of viewpoint that's going to remain on the fringes in, in very specific cases, but is going to almost entirely be supplanted by other political ideas. How did that one feel, trying that one on for size? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um I I didn't realize uh when we started that they would be um a little bit wary of the free market as much as they were. Uh oh, the conservatives. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's that's some somewhat of a uh an issue of uh the the modern use of the word. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I I mean the conservatives don't want democracy. Uh they don't want a free market. They don't want most people to have any say whatsoever in politics. It's it's important to remember that politics, as we think of it now, are it's a very, very recent phenomenon. I would yeah. argue even most of the 19th century, there wasn't really politics the way we think about politics in Europe. You know, you don't get to a universal franchise for a very, very long time. Uh, in mm-hmm. many of these countries, it's not until after the Second World War. Arguably for North America, there there are populations that don't get the vote until, you know, the 1960s, 1970s in some cases. Yep. Um, they're limited, but the, the, it does happen. The idea of everyone participating in politics is just not really in the mix until basically the early 20th century. A lot of that comes from the First World War. A lot of the franchises expanded because of soldiers coming home and basically saying, we fought for what exactly? Like we can't even have a say in the government that's sending us to war. Some of the women's suffrage movement is based in the First World War, as in, well, you know, if it's so important that uh, you be productive to have a say in government, well, we're the ones that were manning the factories while our husbands were away fighting. Mm-hmm. We've demonstrated that we can be productive as well. What exactly is your argument now? I hear a lot of that uh, a majority of the aristocracy in europe was wiped out by world war one that that i'm sure had a factor in taking down conservatism uh yeah to some extent but i mean again i think i think a lot of it is the fact that um the the more the franchise grows the more the kind of people who are considered ineligible for politics are the exact people who are getting a voice in politics Ah, uh, yep. Like a lot of the way that the franchise rolls out is in order of priority that somebody with a conservative outlook would give them. Right? So yeah. if you have to give the franchise, first give it to the people that were okay with having power. And then yeah. the the people were, you know, least not okay with, and then the next least not okay with. Yeah, it, it kind of goes yeah. in that order. And that comes from like very strategic support of liberal governments. And yes. inserting themselves into that liberal uh, uh, hierarchy. And it also helps someone with a conservative outlook that liberalism has been around for like a century by this point. 
yeah, to the, see that to see that like yeah okay there are some things here that create some some solidness some continuity yeah but yeah it's still missing that hierarchy that they crave it still misses that uh authority that they crave yeah um but in a lot of ways it can align with socialism sometimes better than it can align with uh liberalism yeah that was also interesting if only socialism would get on board with the authority part with the obedience part Mm -hmm. if only socialists weren't so concerned with having a say in their own government and to that point it's interesting to see that you know there are in in a lot of ways a a less democratic socialist government could be closer in alignment with a classical conservative government if the continuity of power had existed between them right because there there are a lot of similarities in terms of like the importance of uh cohesive society and mutual support between conservatives and socialists yeah it's just that socialists want that support to be emergent while conservatives want that support to be imposed they don't want people to have to think about it yeah 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 um, so yeah, it, it, it's, there's a lot more tangled up going on there than you would maybe expect. I, 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 one thing that we're going to be really rejecting, especially next episode is the idea of the, um, political spectrum. The political spectrum really only works when you're talking about a very narrow subsection of liberalism. Yeah. Um, and anything outside of that is very poorly represented in a left to right sort of uh dynamic um especially when you get to fascism um because it just doesn't really work on that line uh even the political compass doesn't work that well we're we're going to we're going to be working with some some fresh models on some of that stuff (laughs) but yeah what the final thing i want to leave us with tonight is um so we can work a little bit with fascism is i want to point out the fact that um, at the end of World War One, all three of these groups are looking for some very specific things and are finding them lacking within their own movements. And I want to point out the fact that fascism, what it's going to try to do is as much as possible, fill those uh, gaps. Remind me again what uh, liberalism is lacking at this point. They seem to have been the ones coming out pretty much on top. Uh, what, what were they missing? In a lot of the ways, they are lacking the least. What they are setting themselves up to be is the thing to react against. That being said, that doesn't mean that liberals don't want anything out of these governments. Keep in mind that liberal rhetoric is a ways away from liberal realism so this idea of like you know ultimate like liberty this idea of of uh many many personal uh rights and few personal responsibilities is not really what's in place at all for most people no and there are a lot of people who are still disenfranchised including a lot of soldiers right so at this point there's a lot of people who are supposedly um or who who would most align with liberalism, but feel excluded by the liberal system because they can't participate in it, even though the the ideals of the system say they should be able to. Yeah. Okay. So 
if you're a liberal, let's say, so we, we talked about this, maybe, maybe the person coming, uh, that we're talking about is relatively young, younger than either of us, actually, they'd be coming home from the war, say they're, yeah. I don't know, 21, 22, in some cases, they're grizzled veterans. Um, mm-hmm. They've just spent years watching every single other guy from their village blown to bits in the fields of Belgium. And they get home and they can't vote. How good are they feeling about their their government right now? Not very. They don't have a say. They were just sent over as cannon fodder. Do you think they feel valued? Nope. They're a number. The fascists were very, the very early fascists were very concerned with the plight of returning soldiers. Okay. They said, what you've done is a massive service to your nation, and the fact that you're being ignored is a travesty. You, possibly more than most citizens, should be able to have a say in the government. In fact, maybe we should do something to make sure that you're heard a little bit more than other citizens. Does that sound appealing? For the soldier, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about the uh, what about the conservative? What are they? What do they feel like they're lacking right now? They're they're lacking that that strong uh, continuation, the strong leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they also see the plight of the lower class. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also lacking, to some extent, a sense of national purpose right okay there's this feeling yep. there's this feeling about liberal governments there's this feeling about nationalism in particular that it is a little bit hollow that it doesn't have the same romance to it as you right. know yeah. the the kingdom kind of thing right and there's there's this massive resurgence of like the popularity of like the same way that in the in the um during the renaissance there's this like uh surge of classical literature during the Romantic period, there's a surge of like medieval literature. Oh, okay. Where like the aesthetic of the medieval period is is romanticized. And right. That would be when T. H. White wrote uh, the Once and Future King. Uh, he was a little bit later than that, but you're talking like Tennyson and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the fascists come along and say, you know what? You're right. These liberal democracies, it's kind of hollow. This whole every man for themselves thing. We think that being part of something bigger than yourself should actually mean something. It should be spiritually fulfilling. Okay. And yep. that and so what what we're trying to say is that, you know, sure, it's great that you can talk about the world as being a bunch of nations as peers among equals. I, I'm not sure that's true because, you know, I just feel like, you know, insert country where we are right now, I feel like it shouldn't be illegal to say that we're the best one. You know, I mm. feel like I, I feel I, I, I honestly feel like the people here are something special. And yeah. I, I think that the government not acknowledging that is is a problem. I think we really need to get back to admitting the uh, or, or acknowledging the importance of that community. I think it's important to get people on board with this community um, mm-hmm. to convince them to work for a higher purpose of some sort. We need to set goals as a nation that aren't just make more money. It's how do we achieve greatness as a, a cohesive unit? Okay. Yeah. And in the face of like losing the monarchies that were the center of their worldview for so long, again, this is a 
This is an attractive thing. And we're going to get into all of this in a lot more detail, right? But I just want to tie all of this together before we finish up tonight. Absolutely. Um, And for the socialists, well, the socialists are fractured. They're probably not going to find necessarily what they're looking for in fascism, because in a lot of ways, fascism is a direct uh, uh, reaction against socialism. Yeah. But what some fringe socialists will find is number one enemies of the established liberal order yes number two um a group of people who are willing to act collectively and number three a group who uh is uh claiming at least at first to be uh entirely democratic um to have everybody uh well you scoff the fascist governments all held elections. Um, the The freedom of them is 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 up for debate, but the voting never stopped. But what they end up doing is putting in place things like planned economies, which socialists are very interested in. They did okay. things like collectivize uh, certain industries uh, when deemed important enough, while supporting okay. other businesses as independent ones. So a mixed economy that involved uh, the centralization of nationally important econ- uh, 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 industries, while yeah. also supporting small local businessmen as independents. And like, this looks interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Because socialists, this is a misconception, socialists don't necessarily have a problem with private property. There's this idea that if there was a socialist government imposed on whatever country today, they're going to come along and take all your stuff. No. Communists don't care about your stuff. (laughs) They make a distinction between personal property and private property. And private property is what they have an issue with. This idea that you can just sort of hoard resources for your own use that should be available to everyone. And we can get into the details of that another time. But like, yeah, your, your stuff, that's fine. They have no problem with um, practicing commerce. They have a problem with cap- practicing capitalism. So specifically yeah. owning things that just generate more money by existing, not through working. Yes. The idea of artisans creating things and then selling them, that is not in any way... Um, in opposition to socialism or communism. That's fine. In fact, that's encouraged. It's kind of built on people doing stuff like that. Yeah. So there are some commonalities there, not nearly as many as you're going to see with either liberalism or with, um, with, uh, conservatism, but it will still pull away some socialists, especially those who have become very disillusioned with the, the few major directions that socialism has gone post-World War One. What we see at the end of uh, at the end of World War One is three major political systems. One of which has been hammered by the war, the the liberal system, which mm-hmm. I should also mention. I, I I should have I should have put a little more emphasis on this, but the free market was essentially completely disassembled during the war in order to mobilize a total war economy like yeah those are the most yeah those are the most uh, industrialized places for sure but there was no free market during that time you were told what to produce it was a planned economy it's essentially a failure of the free market in wartime um now that that's something that can be argued either way depending on which side you're on the liberal would say that well that's just what needs to be done to uh, to win a war, and as soon as it was over, it went back to a free market. So what's the problem? And the conservatives would say, well, you know, obviously it wasn't doing what it needed to do because it didn't have unity of purpose without it being 
imposed top down and that's what we've been saying all along mm-hmm. points of view different lenses yeah sure 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 but you know that that is also a pretty heavy blow to to the the liberal uh outlook on things right yeah so yeah. you get you get to 1919 and you've just come through a war that nobody wants to repeat and all three have taken these blows if you are disillusioned with any one of the branches none of the other branches look that appealing to move to that's the no. other thing i want you to consider imagine yeah. being a socialist and moving to conservatism or liberalism neither really <laughs> work that well unless no. you're very fringe socialist that could move to liberalism same with conservatism you're maybe moving to liberalism you're not moving to socialism no and if you're a liberal you're probably staying put unless you're so disenfranchised that you don't know where else to go what fascism does is it opens up a space where disillusioned liberals can go where directionless conservatives can go and where certain small segments of the socialist movements will go to in its early days before they become their primary enemy yeah does that all make sense it does do you see now what i meant from the beginning about fascism existing more as uh, an opportune thing as a thing that exists in the negative space rather yeah. than a force on its own yeah absolutely okay i think i'd like to stop it there for today i don't want to get into too much too fast okay. um because yeah as i said this is a thing that we've been leading up to for a while we might as well take our time and do it right but i think now we've gotten a little more comfortable with talking about political history about politics in a historical context about putting mm-hmm. ourselves in these uh viewpoints and i think we've also really set the stage for 1919 for the rise of the fascists in italy and for how these ideas are going to spread across europe and how they're going to find so many people who find them appealing okay yeah any questions before we wrap up today uh no uh just a comment mm-hmm. i guess yeah I, i'm very impressed that you politically rashomoned me <laughs> i do what i can <laughs> yeah no I, I you know i i i struggled with how to present this one and it's weird that this is maybe the best way uh i think um of coming up with this this concept of different points of view and how they don't change reality but no they do change uh, 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 an experience of reality in a significant enough way that they might as well be different realities sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we'll be doing, dealing with moving forward. So, okay, well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, next time we'll pick up right where we left off and, uh, and we'll see how that early fascist movement uh, pulled from all three segments of the population and, uh, and very, very quickly uh, grew in strength. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Next time on HI101, we'll be looking at how early fascists used the language of all three prevalent political movements to create a version of politics designed to appeal to the most marginalized members of society, and how in a few places they managed to move those politics into the mainstream. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I really overstated the likelihood of a soldier returning post-First World War to a country that didn't give them the vote. By 1918, virtually every country in Europe had at least universal male suffrage. 
this weakened the point I was trying to make, which is that soldiers were very much ignored and under-resourced in these societies, and often grew disillusioned at the gap between opportunity and support that existed there. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Oh,